Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first installment of uh, our Street Meeting House's um, series on Quakers and social justice movements. My name is Dennis Long. I am a senior year history major at uh, Rowan University, uh, currently interning at the Meeting House and going to be the host of this series of podcasts. Uh, today's first installment is going to be on Quakers and the abolitionist movement. And I am joined here today by Dr. Marcus Redeker. Uh, Marcus, if you'd like to introduce yourself, go right ahead. Sure. Uh, thank you, Dennis. Uh, my name is Marcus Redeker. Uh, I'm a professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. I write uh, what is called history from below, meaning the history of people, ordinary working people who are usually left out of the history books. And uh, my most recent book uh, is entitled The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Uh, Benjamin Lay lived uh, from 1682 to 1759, and he played a very important role in making Quakers one of the leading forces uh, for abolition uh, around the Atlantic world. So I've been thinking a lot about Quakerism and history of late and uh, happy, Dennis, to have a chance to talk with you about it. I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, we will certainly be talking about Benjamin Lay in, in, a, in a pretty great extent during this. As, uh, during my research, I found many, many fascinating things about him. We will get onto that quite soon. But in the meantime, uh, I want to start this out by just, you know, discussing about how, you know, uh, when I when I first started doing this research, I began to notice a lot of things involving how the Quaker ideology very much so coincided with anti-slavery ideologies, mainly when it comes to, you know, having that equal ideology of, you know, we're all friends, you know, as, as the title of the Quaker organization um, implies, they're, they're all friends together. And many Quakers were able to go beyond just uh, the white male uh, demographic that most people in the um, early American history often thought of. They, they, they were able to go beyond into, into among women and among um, African-Americans. And that's especially what the series is going to be talking about later on. We're going to be talking about Quakers and women's rights movements, uh, Quakers and um, LGBTQ plus rights movements. And I'm really happy to have an historian like you on here who, like you said, has a perspective from the bottom up because I personally really love that that type of historical perspective. One of my favorite books is um, Howardson's The People's History of the United States because I feel like it's it's a very excellent excellent telling of of the American people as a whole. You know, it's great to hear about key figures and such and other great leaders, but in the end, I feel like it really does boil down to the people themselves. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, the, the first little portion of what we're going to be talking about when it comes to pre-colonial uh, Quakers and abolition, it's more so focused on on key figures than anything, because there were still, of course, Quakers that owned slaves. Um, they were not a majority, I would say, from, from the research that I gathered, but they, they still had a bit of a hold on the, uh, on the Quaker community. Um, I believe it was in your book that I saw where... Um, you know, you talked about how a lot of the people who, who had anti-slavery uh, premonitions were of the working class, of laborers. And um, it's mainly the those who were in power and who were so uh, so-called, quote unquote, enlightened that were pro-slavery. You know, how, how could you find uh, an enlightened type of figure to be pro-slavery, which is which is a very important question. But nonetheless, I want to talk about um, 
one of the the first instances of, of anti-slavery protest by Quakers, which is more of a, a people-oriented thing. It was protests in uh, Germantown, and as well as the exhortation and caution to friends concerning buying or keeping of Negroes, which was a uh, document published in 1693. This was kind of a series of events in Philadelphia that kind of had a, that, that had a a large anti-slavery message to it. I, I could not find a whole lot on this, unfortunately, but it seemed that this was, you know, the, the first printed, uh, I'd say, instance of this anti-slavery movement that began to move forward. And then, of course, we have um, major figures like uh, George Fox, who, while he didn't exactly directly address the institution of slavery, he began to support this idea that slaveries were fully human, much like their fellow Quakers. So we kind of see these developing ideas slowly begin to, to snowball into what is eventually the anti-slavery movement. We also have people um, like Ralph Sandiford, who I know that you mentioned a few times in your book. Uh, so a few quotes from some articles that I found were that um, he had a, quote, divine mission to testify against slavery and saw slavery as a, quote, embodiment of evil. So I, as we see as time goes on, we begin to see more and more gradually grasping this anti-slavery message on a greater extent until we eventually get to someone like Benjamin Lay, who you refer to in your book as the first revolutionary abolitionist. If you'd like to just give a kind of brief, you know, biographical overview of, of, of Benjamin Lay, go right ahead. Well, Dennis, let me actually start with the origins of Quakerism, if I may, because I think Quakers go right ahead, yeah. had a rather divided soul. And by that, I mean, beginning in the 1640s and 1650s, when uh, Quakerism was first formed in the fires of the English Revolution. Quakerism was very radical at that time. Uh, and one of its great leaders was a man named James Naylor, who was a, an antinomian radical, meaning that he rejected the authority of magistrates and ministers and thought that individuals could perceive the truth individually through the inward light. James Naylor proved to be too radical for George Fox. And so what happens is that a kind of war broke out between the radical Quakers and the moderate Quakers. George Fox led a whole series of reforms in the uh, 1660s and 1670s to root out people like James Naylor, uh, including another man named John Perrault, a very active, very radical Quaker. Benjamin Lay is of this radical tradition within Quakerism, but I think a lot of uh, people actually think that George Fox is the only representative of a Quaker tradition. Now, Fox himself was extremely radical in the early days. You know, he would go into a church with Naylor or practically any other Quaker and shout out that the minister, the Church of England, was evil and corrupt. I mean, they would literally disrupt church services. People tend to forget that about George Fox. I see where Lay got his inspiration from. Well, that's right. Lay was channeling <laughs> that older Quaker radicalism. Uh, now, that practice of disrupting church services was, was uh, made illegal in 1655, and actually a lot of Quakers went to jail for continuing to do it. But, but here's my point. Uh, these people like James Naylor, and especially the radical Quakers, came out of the English Revolution with a critique of slavery already formed. Now, it wasn't the case that slavery had been fully racialized yet. So when people talked about slavery in the 1640s and 1650s, they meant racial slavery, but they also meant indentured servitude. They meant people being forcibly conscripted into the army or the navy. 
They meant poor people losing the commons, their access to the common land. Um, and then what happened was uh, as slavery around the Atlantic was increasing, increasingly racialized, some Quakers continued this critique and developed it and became formal abolitionists. Now, what's really remarkable is that even though Quakers were equipped with this kind of oppositional ideology, a kind of implicit anti-slavery, it took almost a century of debate among Quakers to abolish slavery. That first Germantown protest that you mentioned was 1688. Quakers as a group don't decide to disown slave owners until 1776. So you see the power of the institution of slavery that even among a very uh, progressive group like Quakers, it took a long time to convince people that this was the way to go. So, so that's one thing to keep in mind. When Benjamin Lay arrived in Philadelphia in 1732, half of the members of the Philadelphia Monthly Meeting owned slaves, half of them. That's a lot of people. And of course, all of the wealthy Quakers or the weighty Quakers, they all owned slaves. And this infuriated Benjamin. Exactly, yeah. So he got involved with Ralph Sandiford. Uh, Ralph Sandiford died quite young and Benjamin was the main spokesperson for anti-slavery ideas for the next 20 years or so. Uh, but you've got to remember, and contemporary Quakers have to remember, that when Ralph Sandiford and Benjamin Lay spoke out against slavery, they got disowned for it, right? This is a really important thing to remember. The Quaker leadership was firmly in favor of uh, slavery because they, you know, there's a saying that people say that Quakers came to America to do good, and in fact, they did well. And when they did well, they made a lot of money. They did what other people with money, white people with money in early America did. They bought enslaved Africans. So mm -hmm. this was a real issue inside uh, the Quaker community. And Benjamin Lay was not having any of it. He thought that this was wrong, that, that slavery had to be abolished. He thought slavery was destroying Quakerism, that it was a sign of corruption and degradation. And he did everything he could in his life to convince Quakers that they had to abolish slavery immediately. And that's the point. There were a number of Quakers who said, well, let's do it gradually. Benjamin Lay said, no, it's got to stop now because it's wrong, it's immoral, it's evil. It has to be ended now. I found the, uh, the anecdote that you, that you provided of him in, in your book where he walks into the meeting with the sword hidden away in his, in his jacket and, and the book with, um, what was it inside of it? It was- uh, Oakberry juice. Pokeberry juice, right? And he and he, and he sticks the sword into the book uh, to represent kind of like this, like dying of of the of the the value of the Quaker religion. And I and I find that just so fascinating to see the extents that he went to. Um, there is there is a there is an account of him that I that I found um, while doing my research post his death. It was it was published in 1792. Just kind of detailing his life, and uh, they they talk specifically about his anti-slavery practices. And one of them that um, 
he was uh, in Chester County, Pennsylvania, talking to a married couple of farmers who owned slaves. And he was saying to them, you know, you know, you really you should not be doing this at all. This is immoral. This is wrong. This is against God. And they and these these this married couple tried to defend the slave trade to him. And so in retaliation, he pretended to kidnap one of their one of their children, their only child, to show them what exactly it was like to have people taken away from you, to have families split apart. And, you know, he brought it, he brought, he brought the daughter back and the parents, you know, were obviously very distressed. And he said to them, you know, this is what, this is what you are doing to these people. And when I read that, I was like floored for a second because I was like, wow, this guy is really just going with any, any opportunity he can get. And honestly, I, (laughs) while while it's a little bit like, "Mm," it's still really fascinating to see people in this time period to go to this, uh, to this extent. Well, and honestly, I respect them for that yeah, relative to the people that uh, they were with. Well, let me, let me t- say a little bit more about this particular story about Benjamin Lay, because of course, yeah. some people have interpreted it the wrong way saying that Benjamin Lay was a kidnapper. These were actually his neighbors near Abington. Oh, okay. So, so he knew these people, he knew the child, and he basically just invited the child to his home, which uh, was in a cave. Benjamin lived in a cave. Uh, and he just kept the child there and entertaining him all day. And then when the parents got frantic and came looking for him, Benjamin spoke to them with real compassion. He said, I, I understand how you feel. Your child is perfectly safe. But how do you think the parents of the girl, the African girl that you own, how do you think they feel mm-hmm. now that you can identify? with the, this, this loss. So he was really applying this, this very simple but very radical golden rule that you should treat other people as you would want them to treat you. Uh, and this is actually uh, fundamental to, to Benjamin Lay's view of slavery uh, and to a great many Quakers and to a great many abolitionists in general. The idea is you wouldn't want to be enslaved. So therefore, by what right do you enslave other people? This is a basic ethical principle of life yeah exactly i i i'm not surprised that that is the full story i and i'm also not surprised that um you know the the account from that i that i had uh, had looked through from uh, 1792 i believe it was probably did not give the full story because i can imagine that there were people who were thinking oh, should we really be praising this guy but now looking back on it now it's yeah you know now now knowing the full story with all the full records it you know it, it definitely, I feel like he's definitely a, a man worthy of his ideology and worthy to be, to be respected for that. Hey, but, but here, let me, let me just point something out. Of course. Yeah. Benjamin Lay was a deliberately polarizing figure. Mm-hmm. In other words, he would go into a meeting and he wanted to draw a line and say, are you for slavery or are you against it? There is no middle ground. Which is it? And a lot of people really hated him for doing that partly because they thought he was too, too angry. This is not a, a Quaker value, by the way, to be angry, but rather to be peaceful. He was too angry about it. And they also thought that he was contradicting the other Quaker value of, of harmony and consensus by introducing conflict into all these situations. So, so you, you need to know that he, he was really disliked by a lot of Quakers but he was also, this is crucial to know, beloved by a lot of Quakers who agreed with him, but who were afraid to speak out against the weighty Quakers who opposed him. So Benjamin realized that his job 
was to slowly encourage the rank and file Quakers to speak out. And this is where anti-slavery comes from, as you mentioned earlier, among the Quakers. It comes from the bottom up. It's the ordinary Quakers who basically force the leaders to declare themselves against this very widespread practice. I feel like we see a lot of that today, too, in, in uh, politicians that are very, you know, farther left on the American politics standard. You know, we get a lot of very polarizing uh, politicians who are very pro-worker, but yet also among more moderate and, and other and other sects of political parties. They might be a little, uh, you know, less less attuned to them. They might not, you know, be more in favor of them. You know, uh, I don't mean to, you know, delve too deep into modern politics, but I definitely see that with people like Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, those are great modern examples of something like this. Of course, they were not uh, to the point of going into Quaker meetings and sinking a sword through a book to uh, represent the dying of a religion. But of course, they, they definitely have these um, more radical views on our modern standards compared to what most other uh, established politicians really have. Now, so now, it's really it's really interesting to see that that connection. Well, Benjamin Lay, you got another thing to remember about him is that he saw himself in the biblical tradition of being a prophet. Mm-hmm. And his prophecy was that you slave-owning Quakers are destroying Quakerism, you're destroying Christianity, and you're destroying society. And if yeah. you don't stop it, stop slavery now. He said, it's going to be like the poison of dragons living inside you. And was he ever right about that? I mean, we live today with the consequences of slavery that existed from the 17th century well into the 19th century. That poison exactly. is still in our society. So Benjamin was, a, a, was quite a prophet about that. He said, if you don't abolish it, you're going to live with the pain of the violence of slavery for a very long time. Exactly. He very much so a, a Nostradamus in that sense, in which he really did see the future, whether it be intentionally or not. Um, I feel like, you know, when we as we see this evolution of, of abolitionists, too, do you feel, uh, of, of Quaker abolitionists to be specific, do you feel like that this is representative of, you know, a lot of the social justice movements that we see uh, as time goes on, you know, slowly becoming more and more I guess, I guess polarizing and radical to where, you know, because, because we've gotten to a point in, in our society where there's a lot of problems that either really need to be fixed immediately. And if not, you know, they're going to cause a lot of trouble. So I feel like, you know, I feel like, do you, do you, do you also believe that, that this evolution of the, of the Quaker abolitionists could kind of be representative of this? Well, I, I think that uh, Quakers have played a, an extraordinary role in the development of the abolition movement, which was, by the way, uh, one of the very first great successful social movements in all of history. Mm-hmm. In other words, the you know slavery was abolished in Britain and the United States uh, only with tremendous difficulty. Uh, mm-hmm. In the United States, it took a bloody war. Uh, in Great Britain, it did not. First, they abolished the slave trade in 1807. Then in two stages in 1838, they abolished slavery throughout the British Empire. And it was a broad-based movement that kind of made that happen. So one of the things that I think we can draw from this kind of uh, history is that social movements from below create history. They force the leaders to do something different. And I think that's one of the things that, that we need to remember. Now, another thing that I think your listeners would, would want to know, Benjamin Lay's radicalism was not simply all, only about slavery. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. a passionate 
abolitionist, but he was also in favor of gender equality. Uh, he was very animal rights too. animal rights. He was a committed vegetarian uh, and he was environmentally conscious. This is a really important thing for our day. He said, uh, beware rich men who poison the earth for gain. Now that's something somebody could have said last week. You know, it's, this, yeah. he's saying this kind of thing in the 1730s. Absolutely. Yeah. 300 years ago. So, so the question becomes, how do you create change from below? I think that's, and I think uh, Quakers have played very important parts in helping that to happen. For example, uh, in the movement against the war uh, in Vietnam. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The issue of draft counseling. Uh, my friends, uh, Stalton and Alice Lind uh, were very active uh, uh, in that struggle. So, so there is, this is a very honorable part of the Quaker tradition, but Quakers need to remember that it hasn't always been that way and, and that the radical side of Quakerism has been kind of latent at times. And then in moments of kind of upheaval, it tends to emerge. But, but Benjamin Lay and there are lots of other Quakers do embody this really long uh, radical tradition among Quakers. And I think that deserves more study. Absolutely. Uh, and it deserves to be uh, made uh, a part of the ongoing education uh, of Quakers and the rest of society. There's a lot of, of radical history in America that you know many public schools and, and just general public areas don't really teach that often. And I feel like uh, a lot of um, places such as uh, Quaker meeting houses, you know, definitely. Uh, I, I know I know our street does a very good job, but I, I can imagine that there are probably some who kind of lighten back on on the bit of the radical history as well. And even in every in every movement in American history too, especially the civil rights movement of the mid of the mid 1900s, uh, there's a lot of watering down of exactly how radical these things were. Um, I'm currently in a, in a uh, civil rights and black power movements course um, in my senior year here. And uh, we're covering a lot of really, really interesting stuff that I honestly would have never known about unless I went out of my way to research these things or go to a, uh, an African-American uh, history museum that talks about these types of things. And it, it makes me you know, realize that like, you know, we, we never really lost the spirit of uh, revolution that we always talk about. It, just people just try to kind of water this down in order to keep this kind of sense of law and order. I and mean, really, we need this type of thing, you know. And because we didn't heed to someone like Benjamin Lay or any or, or really all of the African American slaves who constantly voiced their their suffering, we never listened to those, and now we are pretty much paying the price for that. Right. Well, I think this is an important point that you know, one of the, the big projects of what I call the new left, the generation that emerged in the 60s and 70s, uh, demanded a new kind of history. And that's what history from below is. We, we wanted a history that took race and slavery seriously. It took working class movements seriously. It took seriously the history of women, the larger part of humanity. Uh, there were demands for new kinds of history. And, and the value of this, and I think uh, Howard Zinn's book, which you mentioned, is one of the most successful examples. It makes activists realize that they too come from a tradition, that there mm -hmm. are traditions out there that can empower you, that you're not the first person who felt this way about racism or about sexism, that there are people who fought and they fought and, and sometimes they lost, frequently they lost and their stories were suppressed. But that's mm -hmm. why we need this history from below to bring those things back because those things can empower us 
and make us see that uh, another world really is possible. Absolutely, absolutely. Just kind of transitioning on the on the timeline, I, I'd like to bring it forward um, into the into the future of, of, of Quaker history. We're going to uh, post-revolution and into the antebellum period. At this point, this is where we begin to from from the research that I did. You know, that's this is where we begin to see even larger scale recognition of um, the Quaker support for abolition. Uh, I have a um, I, I found a few uh, documents. One of them being from uh, the Quaker yearly meeting. For in New York City from 1837, um, in which a let me let me try to find this this quote real quick because it's a really really interesting quote from uh, this person who was speaking. Uh, it's it's a direct address to the citizens of the United States uh, of America on the subject of slavery from the yearly meeting of the Religious Society of Friends, uh, parentheses called Quakers, held in New York City. Uh, one of these sentences uh, really really stood out to me. Being who has bestowed his favors upon us so bountifully, we were to remain silent while within the borders of our territory, more than two millions of human beings are held in servile bondage. So you see that a lot more Quakers on this very big scale at the yearly meeting in New York City are recognizing, hey, so many of us have been silent about this and now we're paying the price. This is not what God wanted us to do. Well, you got to remember that there was a tremendous struggle among the Quakers for someone to be able to say that. Exactly. You know, uh, Ralph Sandiford uh, wrote a very serious indictment of slavery and the Quaker overseers would not allow him to publish it as a Quaker. They mm -hmm. booted him out and he published it on his own. Benjamin Lay published his book on his own. He went to Benjamin Franklin, the leading printer in Philadelphia, and said, here, would you publish it? I'll pay you to publish it. So, so we've got to remember that even those things that we regard as progress, they're based on an internal struggle. Uh, and and this, is, this is really the history of slavery. Uh, it was a hugely powerful, profitable system. And, and that has to be borne in mind, the profits, the, the, the power of slave owners, both uh, as economic actors, but as political actors, you know, with a great deal of governmental power. So we, we've got to remember that, you know, whatever success was achieved, uh, in this struggle against slavery, it was it really was hard work at every step of the way, because Absolutely. the resistance was everywhere. Um, the racism that supported the slave system was everywhere. Now, what what's really interesting about Benjamin Lay in this respect is that he never talked about race at all. Mm -hmm. He used the word color. Yeah, some people are of a different color than we are, uh, and, and then he would invoke this biblical idea. Uh, what I would call an anti-racializing strategy. He would say, we are all of one blood. This is what uh, radical Quakers and radical abolitionists would say, affirming the unity of all humankind against those who were busy dividing the world up by race, which was then becoming a so-called scientific concept. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it was pseudoscience, but, <laughs> but, but, to, but to reject that way of thinking about the world was itself a declaration of liberation. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it's very much so uh, going beyond the, the, the categorizations that are created in order to oppress people. And even along with that too, you definitely see that in, in class as well, how many wealthy slave owners uh, go off to, in a way, manipulate the poor who, who, who do not own slaves to kind of get them onto their side. You know, we kind of see this in, um, in the Quakers a little bit, how I'm sure many wealthy slave-owning Quakers had probably you know, convinced 
uh, other working Quakers onto their side a little bit because they have the power to do this type of thing. You know, maybe they, they owned the lands that they had worked on, so they couldn't really go against them. But you also see this in the South too, uh, pre and, and during the Confederacy, where many of the soldiers really weren't slave owning. They were just convinced that you know, slavery was a part of their Southern identity. And so they wanted to fight. And since they wanted to fight for their Southern identity, the, the, these institutionalized slave owners really picked at the hearts of them. And it's honestly kind of tragic. We talked about this a lot in my public history course last semester, how even today you still see plenty of people who uh, have such a strong like ancestral tie to the Confederacy in a way, even though this was kind of the result of institutions manipulating the people. Yeah, this, uh, this current debate that we have about uh, the statues of Confederate generals is very interesting in this regard. Yeah, we talked about that a lot too. Well, I have a colleague named Kurt Savage at the University of Pittsburgh who has worked on these Confederate memorial statues. Oh, okay. And one of his points is that when these things were erected in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, they were all uh, considered to be weapons. Mm-hmm. Weapons in the return of the South to power, weapons in the reestablishment of racism uh, against the challenges it had received. Uh, so, so we need to understand that these things were never innocent monuments. They always had very deeply political purposes. Uh, I personally think that we should have monuments of people who represent a better set of more democratic and egalitarian ideals just like Benjamin Lay, just mm-hmm. like Nat Turner. There is a statue of Denmark Vesey now in, uh, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So their, their progress is being made, but the battle over the narrative of history takes place in books, in discussion, mm-hmm. and in the material landscape of monuments. Um, you may have heard of the, uh, the direct action taken in the Black Lives Matter movement in England where a statue of a slave trader named Edward Colston was torn down oh, yes. and dumped into the harbor. Uh, I did a lot of research in Bristol uh, for a book I wrote called The Slave Ship, A Human History. Hmm. Uh, I walked by that uh, statue, and this was about 2005, and I, I remember thinking to myself, somebody is going to tear this down. One of these <laughs> this statue is not going to, because there, was already a, uh, there were already groups in Bristol who were protesting against it. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. This statue came down because people had been organizing against it for a long time, for years. Mm-hmm. There's uh, something called... There's the, no isolated events, really. Yeah. There's something called the Bristol Radical History Group, which has been protesting mm-hmm. against Colston and that statue for at least 10 years. So, <laughs> uh, so again, we see how movements from below are the real makers of history. Speaking of uh, moves from below, that, there was a, a really interesting article that I found in my research um, that talked about how in uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania, and a um, and uh, some of Cumberland County, in New Jersey, there were these uh, parallel communities, that's, as it's called, between uh, Quakers and African Americans. And while they weren't exactly fully mixed inclusive communities, they were kind of separate but connected in the sense that they both recognized that they had the same goal in mind and that they were hoping to be able to uh, keep their peaceful lifestyles together. It talks about in the article here that there, that there are some instances of Quakers going in, like following uh, 
slave catchers and and uh, slave kidnappers back into places such as Maryland to uh, regain some of the people from the parallel communities that had been kidnapped. Uh, there's a story of a, of a man of an African American named Thomas Mitchell who had been uh, captured and then basically later that night a few Quakers from the same community uh, rode their horses down to to bring him back to his family. And so, like I said, while they weren't exactly fully inclusive and fully, you know, integrated to where, you know, there were, there were uh, African-American Quakers being introduced to stuff like that, you know, they had their own separate churches, uh, but they, they still were connected in that general sentiment of, you know, trying to keep slavery away from coming back up to the North and, and keeping it away this way, African-Americans can continue to attempt to live a prosperous life. Well, I would make two points about that. One is, I think a lot of scholarship has shown in recent years that many white abolitionists were opposed to slavery, but they were not in favor of racial equality. Exactly. They're, they're, and that would apply to a considerable number of Quakers as well. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was one thing to abolish slavery, but to really imagine an equal society was, was something that a lot of white abolitionists were, were really not willing to do. Yeah. But then again, there were radical Quakers who kind of put it all on the line, who, who fought for people. There was a Quaker uh, in Delaware named uh, William Garrett, who was a very important figure in the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually was uh, uh, quite seriously attacked in his own day. Even so, and acknowledging the importance of that, I think that uh, many people have overemphasized the role of white abolitionists in the Underground Railroad. Exactly. Because the truth is that uh, most of the heavy lifting was done by the support networks among uh, enslaved people in the South and by the free black communities in the North. And this is actually a subject that I'm working on right now. Oh, great. Uh, escaping slavery by sea in the 19th century. Oh, okay. It was uh, black sailors and dock workers and working class people who helped to smuggle those who wanted to escape slavery onto the vessels. And then they would take them to a place like Philadelphia, New York, or Boston, where those people would then be housed within the free black community. So so we need to to bear in mind that, that the struggle against slavery had this very foundational element. Uh, in the enslaved communities and in the free black communities, and that the abolitionists certainly played a significant role, but sometimes that's been allowed to uh, to hide the role that uh, black actors played. Absolutely, yeah. The, the article does mention too that um, that their history has kind of put them on too much of a pedestal than they really deserve. You know, obviously they should be praised for taking these acts, but in the end it's not really just them that were holding the entire movement up together, but I'm excited to see how that research, uh, how that research goes. I, I, I'm very excited to see that in the future. Um, just, gonna, just to kind of go into some, uh, just to, some concluding questions. I, I, this has been a really, really great discussion. Uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, have, I have a few questions that um, I know we talked about any modern parallels uh, that we see with this, um, whether it be religiously based or, or, or secular, um, and I, I, I know that we definitely talked about how Benjamin Lay's eccentrism and, and his, his very much so uh, willingness to, to express his ideas absolutely pushed the movement. But I guess I, for as like a, like a final question, you know, what, what can we learn from these Quaker approaches, whether it be uh, their religious beliefs uh, coinciding with this or 
whether it just be from their organization as as one group of people, you know, what do you think that we can learn from this? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that strikes me as important about the life of Benjamin Lay. Of course. Benjamin Lay was an agitator. Mm-hmm. He wanted to stir up trouble. He wanted literally to wake people up. He says that in his book, he says, people have gone to sleep. They're not thinking about what's right and wrong. The custom of slave owning makes them disinclined to question their own behavior and their own ethics. So we need agitators. I think that's one thing we should learn from Benjamin Lay's life. You need people who are going to put themselves on the line, stir up things, and basically cause everyone to debate what is going on. You know, uh, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, a Philadelphia physician named Benjamin Rush, uh, was the first biographer of Benjamin Lay. And he said that Benjamin Lay in his day was the best known person in all of Pennsylvania. (laughs) I can assure you it wasn't because of his book, because it's a very difficult book to read. Uh, Yeah. It was because of his guerrilla theater. It was the things he acted out in public, which were provocative in intention. And they made everyone say, do you know what Benjamin Lay just did? (laughs) Well, do you think he was right or do you think he was wrong? And so his idea was, we've got to debate this. And so to force the debate, to bring up the questions that people don't want to talk about, to to get into the issues that are really deep and profound, uh, Benjamin Lay really insisted on that. And that fearlessness of speaking truth to power, okay, this was one of the principles of his life. This goes back to the ancient uh, Greek philosopher Diogenes. Yes, yeah. A very important thinker. Uh, and, and I think we need that in our times. You Absolutely. To be always willing to speak truth to power. I think that Benjamin Lay and a lot of uh, Quaker abolitionists uh, can help us learn to do that. Lay was definitely an early practitioner of the, of the late John Lewis's ideology of uh, good trouble. I, I, right. I, I feel like that's a very, very great way of, of putting it, you know, where, you know, Getting into trouble, if it's for the right cause, is absolutely good trouble. But I would like to say thank you again so much for, for coming on to discuss. This was a absolutely wonderful discussion, uh, and I'm very happy that uh, we got to kick off the series this way, and I'm sure that everyone listening in will enjoy it very much so, and uh, now approach these things with a new open mind. So once again, thank you very much, and to those listening, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you next time. For more information about today's topic and resources, please visit historicasnh.org slash podcast. Arch Street Meeting House is dedicated to preserving and maintaining its historic meeting house and burial grounds, and expanding public understanding of the impact and continued relevance of Quakers. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to support Arch Street Meeting House, please consider making a financial gift at historicasnh.org slash donate. Join us next time as we explore untold stories in Quaker history. See you then.